Hello and welcome to the Stockout. I'm Mike Bowden, just here from Freight Waves, joined by Grace Starkey. Grace, good to see you. Good to see you on uh, Freight Waves now this morning, talking about consumer debt, the all, all important um, you know, topic. Yeah, it's. Uh, we'll dive into it in this episode today, but you know, it's it's so strange to see this. So many signs of what should seem like some struggle when it comes to uh, consumer demand or spending, but uh, still so many surveys that showcase that we're going to see uh, a, an active holiday season. So I think it's going to be interesting. We'll, we'll, of course, dive into it later in the episode, too. <laughs> yeah, so we'll talk about that today. And then we'll talk about um, Instacart, which uh, those shares have been weak since going public. So some of the same concerns that we expressed you know, a few weeks ago, when we talked about that IPO, when they released their prospectus, um, it seems like others are concerned about that well, as well. The street's been concerned about it. I mean, it has been a situation where the stock market's been kind of jittery um, and, and some of these uh, more riskier names have come down, but that one's come down, you know, quite a lot from the IPO price. So we'll talk about that. And then we'll talk about uh, Craig Fuller's article. He put out an article, um, I think it was t- uh, Sunday, uh, October 15th, and that was one that I think you have particular insight into because of your experience in the in the freight brokerage industry. Um, it was really kind of a follow-on to the latest state of freight discussion, um, where it's just sort of, um, you know, went into more detail on, on sort of the thesis. Uh, in, in that discussion, we'll talk a little bit about, about Rite Aid filing for bankruptcy. I think most people saw that, maybe weren't shocked, uh, considering that they've been under financial pressure for a long time. And then preview... Next week's episode, which I think is really going to be a good episode, um, with our friend Chris Moe at Cartograph. And Chris Moe is an expert in all things related to Amazon. Uh, and, and so we'll talk about that. But you know, I want to start out with you know talking about uh, the topic that you talked about this morning on Freight Waves Now. That's the consumer uh, debt. And we want to show a table that they had on the New York Fed website, which sort of breaks this down by the various tranches. And so you know, you were talking primarily this morning about credit card debt, and you do see that on the third to to the bottom uh, row, up forty five billion uh, the previous quarter, and up one hundred forty four billion year over year, and so it's it's a little over a trillion dollars. I think it's the first time it's been over a trillion dollars. But you see all these other categories too, and almost all of those are up. I mean, you do see you know the, the interesting the mortgage debts you know down. You know, just a little bit. I think that's a function of just the, the, the hasn't been a lot of homes turning over lately. There's, there's like the fewest number of homes turning over in, in many years, and but still on an annual basis up 627 billion to 12 to, to 12 trillion of, of, of mortgage debt. At least that's secured by the home, uh, you know, value. And then you see, you know, student debt coming down. You do see people that made the the payments um, in order to avoid interest uh, expenses when the interest started up again. So that's uh, maybe to be expected. But then you see autos, and autos is almost as bad as a credit card. Um, on the aggregate yeah. basis, it's it's more, at least that's um, secured by value of an asset, you know, I'll be an asset that's depreciating. But you see that's up um, annually $80 billion to $1.58 trillion. And then other, um, which I guess would be like other types of personal loans, you see that up as as well. So all, all things considered, the total consumer debt um, revolving and non-revolving up $909 billion to a total of $17 trillion. That is a big increase in one year. And it does 
you know, concern you. And then I have, we have other, a couple other charts from the, the, the Fed. So this is consumer debt payments as a percentage of disposable income. So this, this, this excludes uh, mortgage debt. And so this is basically the cost to, as a percentage of disposable personal income to service the debt. So basically interest payments. And you see that's crept up to about the highest level since that 2009, you know, recession and just, just under, under 6%. And there's another one that's a little bit more uh, encouraging that's similar. This is the, the debt um, service for uh, mortgage payments. So, so this is for, for homes and you see this being about 4% of the total, um, whereas, you know, it, it had been, you know, during the last, you know, the Great Recession up as high as, as 7%. So that's a little bit more positive, but that doesn't really seem sustainable given that we've had such a sharp in- increase in mortgage uh, rates. Those are closing in on on, on 8%, um, you know, a lot higher than than they were. So, so when you look at those various charts, uh, what stands out to you? Well, I, I think just the what seems clearly uh, not encouraging and maybe uh, for the rest of this year and spending, we don't see it, but really going into 2024 is, is just how, how the consumer is going to be working on paying this back. I mean, we had a interesting discussion this morning too, on like long-term versus short-term and, and what uh, people are considering when they're looking at the debt in front of them. But um, I think there was an article I shared with you that showcased just over the past year, yeah, $116 billion in new credit card debt. And what was interesting about this, I think it was a wallet hub survey. There was $88.4 billion that of that, that just came from holiday spending alone. So I guess it, it makes me nervous to see such positive outlooks on at least what could we see as positive outlooks for holiday spending even this year. And then considering adding on to all of the figures you just shared, Going into 2024, where we've even discussed, I mean, here at Freeway, we've seen a more positive freight market. But for me, it's just, uh, it's difficult to wrap my head around when we're going to see the average consumer or the average debt holder in this case uh, starting to, to pay this all back. Uh, I mean, we have student loans turning back on. You technically still have another year to to avoid that if you really wanted to, but it just seems like uh, unless we continue to see positive uh, information on on jobs, uh, like we saw this past month, it seems like a very interesting conundrum that the average American consumer has got themselves into. Yeah, I think there's been so many other so many individual pressures, but I think it's just really the inflation that's that's caught people off guard. That we were yeah. just sort of in this lull that inflation would be two or three percent, and then you know it went to the high single digits and close to double digits. And it was just, this is, this is not a inflationary type environment that people are used to. And most in what two years where inflation outpaced, um, you know, people's, um, you know, income growth. And I do think some of those inflation numbers are just understated. Also the, the, some of those, those federal uh, numbers, cause it just doesn't seem like even those numbers are, are kind of the reality of those prices that I've seen. So um, I, I've always sort of been a little bit skeptical of, 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 of those things. And so I guess it brings up the next question is sort of which, um, you know, sectors in either CPG or retail more broadly are most at risk from having a indebted consumer? 
if I had to choose, I would say probably retail over CPG. I think uh, if anything, especially with like trends we've seen with uh, just even food shopping in particular, groceries in particular, I think that's uh, an area where consumers are considering first that they need to, of course, you know, uh, continue to spend and, and be strategic in that spending as well. Uh, surveys have shown that store cards for a lot of retailers, so those like Target, M- Macy's, JCPenney, uh, throwback there, uh, <laughs> have been reporting all lows when it comes to uh, incomes, uh, declines on their store cards, delinquencies on their store cards, and just overall people submitting for store cards too. It's funny, I actually have a friend who works at Best Buy who said that they're getting more pressure as ever as employees to really push those cards because uh, they're seeing less and less uh, people even applying for them or getting even approved for them as well. So I think looking at just the way that uh, where that credit card spending is is usually put and where some of this like uh, debt is considered more so, uh, I would say retail uh, over CPG any day at this point. Yeah, I would agree with you. Um, although we have seen some increases in, in elasticities for CPG, you sort of go back a year or so, year or two, CPG companies are saying, yeah, there's a lot of inflation. We're raising our prices a lot, but really haven't seen any any change in our volume. But now they are seeing changes in their volume, which which just shows consumers are under more pressure than it was a year or two ago. It's still not terrible. It's still some of these companies are raising prices. You know, let's say high single did maybe, maybe raise the price 8% and they get a 4% reduction in, in volume or something like that. So it's still... Maybe less than you would have expected, but at least it is it is bigger than it was before. Is there anything to be made of this kind of emerging thesis that a lot of the younger generation is priced out of coming up with enough for a down payment on a house or having enough for a new car that they just sort of throw their hands up in the air and say, well, there's no point in, in, in saving up that you know amount of cash that I would need for some of these big ticket purchases, so I might as well just spend it on, on, on more immediate gratification, which would seem completely counterintuitive. It seems like if, you know, $400,000 house is now $800,000 house. Now I need $160,000 for a down payment instead of, um, $80,000 for, let's say 20%, you know, down payment. But is, do you think there's anything to be made of that, um, th- that thesis? A, a thousand percent. It's, I, I will say, especially depending on uh, when you bring up the mortgage aspect, I mean, looking at, there's some uh, uh, like suburb areas and just different, very good like areas to raise a family that I've been watching prices just not even making sense for the, even going inside the home and, and seeing, but just competition, right? Uh, uh, a lot of, uh, I'd say our generation is is losing out on uh, others that are, are looking in the market today. And I think it is getting to that point. I mean, uh, it, a little, definitely a little bit different of a market, but about a, a year and a half ago, even I was looking and that you would go and look at a property and get a call about two hours later that someone paid in all cash. And so it's, you know, it was someone who's, who's, uh, I'm taking care of my student loans, a lot of my debt, but still building that cash incentive up. It's, it does get to a point where you're just like, you know, maybe I should live that yellow lifestyle and just live in the now rent until I die. But, uh, I, I will say the mortgage side and, and the car side as well, right? Like looking at uh, what, what's of value, what's available out there. Uh, our my generation millennials might be feeling that pain uh, a little more, and I'm sure those underneath as well. Uh, 
and, and that's where, <laughs> you know, I do get concerned because uh, the fact that, I mean, in schools, we don't even, we barely teach finances to begin with. And then uh, being in this, like, uh, this atmosphere that we're in today, uh, does the younger generation know how to spend and spend appropriately? And uh, we can talk about this too, but the buy now, pay later options, that's huge among Gen Zs and millennials. And as much as it seems like uh, uh, a better way to purchase items and avoid interest rates in particular, we're doubly, doubling down on it. And we're it's still debt, just a little bit more of the short term. And uh, I agree. I think that's, uh, it's these, these different uh, uh, maybe debt options in particular that are being offered to our generation is, is pushing back the uh, capabilities of being able to afford mortgages or, or even auto loans, depending on, on what you're looking at. So, yeah, I, I would definitely say I think there's that frustration um, going on. And I think even myself, I'm like, I'd love to see some of these rates go down, but it's not happening. So people are, are really kind of questioning, I think, yeah, those long-term plans and, and what, what comes next. But there are other options, like you said, buy now, pay later that are almost making the situation worse for those who might not be able to completely wrap their head around their finances at this point. Yeah, I, you know, I grew up in um, the Chicago area. And in Illinois, there's a state requirement in order to graduate that you have to have a consumer ed requirement and you have to take a consumer ed course. And so you have some semblance of knowledge about why you don't want to you know, have a huge interest rate, um, or a huge um, credit card balance, et cetera. But I want to move on to this next story, which is um, you know, Instacart. We had a show you know, a few weeks ago about Instacart and went through the prospectus a little bit and you know, went through some risks. And um, you know, it seems like some of these, these, these risks are, um, are, are shared. Some of these uh, concerns are shared by the investment community. So this went public at $42. It's since retreated to $25 and 20 cents. Um, so it hasn't been a great uh, return. Only eight companies have gone public since Instacart. And some of the concerns are just competition across all these other lines of, um, you know, other lines of businesses, um, you know, DoorDash, Uber Eats are, are two of the things that are maybe potentially competitors. But I think the, 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 the big competitor I'm, you know, would be concerned about is just some of these major retailers like Kroger and Albertsons combining, I think that hurts them. Uh, we'll see if that actually gets approved by the, the FTC. I suspect it will. Um, but other things like just just Walmart you know, building out their capabilities as as well. And then you know CPG company, yes, they could you know advertise on on, on Instacart. They could also you know take those dollars directly to the um, to the retailer. And um, it, it's just it goes to the saying, well. You know, I mean, Instacart has been um, sort of growing the the advertising revenue and sort of you know look, making the margins look better. But what it struggled at is just keeping the volume growth in terms of you know the number of transactions sort of always growing. And and so you do wonder if some of this was kind of a pandemic era type behavior, and you know other companies being more aggressive in this space um, you know hurts them because I, I think the maybe the revenue for uh, advertising can only be so much out of um, proportion to the overall um, you know, transaction volume. Oh, I, I definitely think it's a pandemic uh, era 
a hot topic. I mean, uh, you saw Shipwright is the one that I used in the past. I believe Kroger actually purchased that up as well. So to talk about that competition, that's huge. And uh, the percentage points on some of these transactions are just so incredibly high that I think consumers are going to really start to think twice about whether or not just taking a walk down the block or or better planning their day to to pick up these items right like this it made sense when you you couldn't leave your homes or uh for instance like a lot remember a lot of grocery stores are only open certain hours of the day like it, to better plan for your family during the pandemic it was very useful uh and i just think that's that's fallen off i, mean, I was looking at uh, there's a grocery chain up in Michigan called Meyer, and I was just looking at their Instacart prices compared to just having Meyer deliver through ship, uh, which is one of them. And on Instacart, they're uh, about 17% higher pricing than either just going to the store, and I think it was like closer to 10% of going through shipped. And for right there, we're talking about, right, how the consumer seems to be very frugal with where they're putting their money and they're still planning on, on spending a lot for uh, the holidays. I mean, that right there is some huge cost savings that I, I would make sure is still in my pocket. Uh, and of course, I think what's fighting against it too, we have uh, oil prices is one thing to look at, but as those uh, move with the market too and potentially go down, that's another area where it's like, why, why am I paying these extra fees on top of fees when I could easily just put this back into my schedule and not have to pay this amount? You bring up the advertising too. I mean, Walmart is just as dug in and it's advertising and its own uh, marketplace too. So I, I think even the ad aspect is something that's uh, and I don't see long-term growth in with the competitors that are out there and even the vendors that are within the Instacart portfolio. Yeah, your time has to be pretty um, valuable, I think, in order to sort of make the numbers work um, You know, there. I don't mind going outside, going, uh, walking distance from Trader Joe's. I just have to avoid other, the impulse purchases, a thousand different types of craft beer on the way to the checkout yeah. um, line. But um, I want to bring <laughs> up this next uh, article. Uh, this is an article that um, hit... On Sunday, written by our CEO and founder Craig Fuller, and I think you really have unique, you know, insight there. Um, so, so Craig writes about uh, the freight re recession, unlike others in history, and really this was a follow-on to what was discussed at the State of the Freight webinar. And I do think if there's one webinar that you join every month, that should probably be the webinar. And the point that was made on that webinar was that you go back in sort of previous cycles that the freight brokers had a much different position in the marketplace than they do now. And and much more of the freight space you know, goes through brokers now, something like 20% versus, you know, you go back in the previous cycles, it was more like 6%. It was a, it was a nascent industry in, in, in 2000 uh, when, when that was the case. And um, it's it just, it's a bigger part of, let's say, shippers, you know, routing guy, they almost feel like these are kind of, they're almost like a core, you know, carrier, even though they don't own you know, the assets and it's not um, sort of a situation for just freight on the fringes where truckers desperate to get out of a certain, you know, lane. So they're really taking advantage of the the, the, the carrier by having, you know, basically next to, to nothing that, that, that and, and sort of the, the so what of all this is that it's keeping some of these, this capacity in the market for longer than it otherwise would be because it's allowing uh, carriers to find loads that they wouldn't be able to carry, uh, find uh, 
broker takes you know, a big chunk of the, of the of the margin, but it's sufficient to keep uh, truckers moving and have cash flow coming in to, to, to keep them in business. And it, and it just essentially keeps the freight market looser for longer. And you, know, you have a lot of a background in, in, in brokerage. I wanted to see what you thought about uh, the article. I thought it was spot on, especially, you know, I do the radio show as well. And I can't tell you what, once a week I get a uh, good old, uh, do carriers even need brokers arguments. So I honestly found it refreshing to be honest with you to, to see this out there, you know, and also consider just the last couple of years. I mean, brokers in particular, uh, when the market was flipped in favor of carriers, they were doubling down on carrier reps, trying to build as many relationships as they could with these small carriers. So those who focused on that during that time have this incredible pool of small carriers that they're working with, but not only working with, talk about visibility tools, have actual visibility of where that capacity is and are offering a lot of these carriers better incentives and better programs uh, than they have in the past. And so what has that done? It's created this really great pool again of small carriers that they can pull from. And I think what really uh, showcases that they need each other, carriers, and brokers more than ever is, is exactly Craig's point. I mean, at the end of the day, shippers are coming to freight brokers as really almost like they're managed services and at some point, if not bringing some of those big good uh, brokers in as managed services and playing this overall core carrier role, uh, which means that those freight brokers then have to understand that the carriers, the small ones in particular, that get them usually the best margins and the best uh, uh, cost, at least especially cost savings to those shippers, are, are the ones that they need the most. So it's, it's just, I, I love the article because it's, uh, I hope that people read it in our industry, brokers and carriers like, and they can truly see and maybe hear a little bit uh, better how important each role they have to each other. And I just think coming off the market that we had, this is almost doubling down on that small carrier relationship. We were looking left and right for every single carrier we could find to deal with uh, the, the capacity, uh, I guess not problems, but uh, capacity overflows from uh, uh, the past market. And, uh, and this is the outcome. And uh, I think it's it's why those digital players are showcasing more of a RFP, RFQ strategy to their shippers too. Uh, they understand that uh, that the brokers have a really great role to play right now in this market. And the fact that we are seeing so many small carriers stay in play yells two things for me. One, brokers are still working and making sure that shippers are seeing some cost savings, in, even in the market we see uh, today in probably likely because shippers are pissed for paying so much over the last couple of years and two they're paying the carriers as fairly as possible in the market that is out there because they know they can't lose them or else this whole thing crumbles so uh i, I loved it i think it was a really great analysis of not only what's happening today in the market but really how we got to this point and again for the back and forth of who needs who hopefully both parties left this realizing that they kind of need each other in uh, this market and the market's moving forward as well. Yeah, that's good because for so long, it seemed like all the entrants in the freight industry were non-asset based 
brokers. That's all anyone wanted to invest in. Let someone else take the risk of owning the assets. That's a horrible business model. But not everyone can be a broker. At the end of the day, I mean, someone needs to own the assets. So it, it almost seems like it's kind of the, the carriers being treated fairly as a result of market conditions and almost there being too much of a proliferation of of, of brokers trying all going after the same the, the same load. So I thought it was very interesting yeah. also. We have about a minute left. I want to go through this one last story. You probably saw this Rite Aid filed for bankruptcy. And um, you know, I look back at my stock out newsletters. Exactly one year ago, one of the things that I, I highlighted in the article in, in the newsletter was um, something written up by a company called Credit Intel, which analyzes the um, income statements and uh, balance sheet and, and cash flow statements of various companies to give other companies that do business with them a heads up that they could be in uh, trouble financially. And one of the things they highlighted um, in October of 2022 was they gave Rite Aid between a 10 and 50% chance of filing for bankruptcy within 12 months. So right <laughs> as the 12 month period hits, they called it they called it well, and this is going to be a restructuring. So there still might be some of those, those um, stores around, but you know, would expect there to be fewer of them. This is part of the settlement related to the uh, oversupplying of the prescription painkillers. What a disaster that was. They're also kind of a distant third between uh, CVS and and and, and Walgreens. Um, but uh, any thoughts on Rite Aid? Have you ever been to a Rite Aid? Yeah. Uh, not for a long time i'll say that uh probably the last time i needed a prescription and actually that was walgreens so no um it's uh last time i was in the right aid didn't love the inside of the store too much so i don't think there's a ton of investment of what's happening inside uh i haven't checked out their website but i'll tell you i know to talk about Dublin Walmart is doing a lot in regards to uh, more of the health services. Uh, you see some of these bigger guys really focusing on their pharmacy services as well. So uh, it, not surprised by this one and and uh, probably should have made a bet on this. It sounds like a year ago. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why it needs to exist. It seems like um, there's so many CVSs <laughs> absolutely every place that um, that's sort of getting to be the market them and, and Walgreens. But next week, join us for a discussion about Amazon. And uh, that's all we have for today. Hope everyone has a good one. 